You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. Now we have the scripture reading today. It's from 1 Samuel, chapter 11, 1 to 11, and chapter 12, 6 to 25. 1 Samuel, chapter 11, 1. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days' respite, that we might send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept out loud. Aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen, and Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Jabesh-Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation." When the messengers came and told the men of Jabesh, they were glad. Therefore, the men of Jabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day, Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 6. And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab, and they fought against them, 
And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king, and now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Now, therefore, stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die, for we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to God. Help us to respond in faith. Thank you, Tara, for reading that so well. Let me just adjust the mic. Oh, and how's that? Okay. I got a thumbs up from the back, so I'm going to take that as okay. Um, so my name is Jacob, uh, or Jake Abraham, as, as Patrick mentioned. I'm one of the elders in the first congregation, the ex-treasurer. Very happy to have handed that over to the very capable hands of, of Patrick. Um, and, uh, you know, he's doing a great job with it so far. Um, so it's my pleasure to bring the, the Word of God to you this, this morning. Uh, we've got a very interesting passage. It's not a very famous passage. Many of you may not have remembered this particular story, uh, but I think it's a great story. I think there's some tremendous things we can learn from it. And just maybe join me in just a moment of prayer before we go into it. 
Lord, we just pray that we know that all scripture is, is provided for our training, for our reproof, for correction, and for encouragement. And we pray that this passage today would do all of those things. And that even as we see a glimpse of, your, of history and, and your hand in it, that we would be encouraged in our own lives about who you are and what you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> so my son, Josiah, loves the Transformer cartoons. And I assume many of us have seen that. Can I see a show of hands? Do you guys know Transformers? Okay, most people, right? And there's this new series called Transformers Earthspark that came out on Netflix recently. <clears throat> so as we were watching the first episode, as you might expect, the big bad guy, Megatron, jumps out, right? But suddenly there's a bit of a twist because in a somewhat strange way, apparently at some point they all sat down and they had a chat and Megatron decided that he wasn't going to be bad anymore and he was just going to be good and, and he was going to help the humans instead of trying to enslave them. Now, there was something about that narrative that just felt a bit strange. Because if you think of some of the big villains of popular stories like Lord of the Rings, say Sauron, or Voldemort, or the, even the old Megatron, I think part of what appeals to us about these stories is that these villains are what you call archetypes, or an embodiment or a reflection of something that is a reality in this world. And that reality is the existence of a type of evil that seeks to dominate, subjugate, and bring all things under its control. An evil that cannot be reasoned with, because it's not driven by what is right or wrong, it's driven by a desire to elevate itself above others and for gain. It's driven by a desire to serve itself and what it wants at any cost. And I think part of the appeal of these stories is there's something deep within us that resonates with the desire to see evil like that defeated and justice served. Now, I'm sure you can think of many historical examples of people like this, Hitler or the Mongols. And right here in our passage, we see an example of that kind of a person, Nahash the Ammonite. He has besieged the town of Jabesh Gilead, and it's clear that they are hopelessly outmatched and have no chance of defeating this king. So first, they try to offer surrender, and they say, look, we'll serve you, just don't, just don't kill us. But Nahash apparently is not just interested in victory. He wants to gouge out the right eyes of all these people. Now, there's two reasons he might want to do this. One is, if in order to fight, you had to hold a shield and cover one eye. So if you only had, and you have to aim with the other one as you throw spears or whatever you might want to throw. Um, so if you only have one eye, you're unfit for battle, but you're still fit for work. But there seems to be one other thing he wants to do. In the text, it says that he wants to humiliate Israel. He wants to send a message. And there are some texts from the Dead Sea Scrolls that say that Nahash had already done this to a number of towns before he'd got to Jabesh Gilead. And some of the people from those towns were taking refuge there. So they knew that he wasn't bluffing. So they asked for seven days to send for help. And Nahash, in his arrogance, decides to let them do it. Now, before we go on with the story, you might be asking, how relevant is this story really for me today? I mean, I don't know how bad your situations are, but I'm hoping no one's trying to gouge out your right eyes. But even if not that extreme, I think many of us here might be in situations with our backs against the wall, in situations that seem impossible. And many of these situations might even be because of the same root drivers that are putting these people in this, power, control, and gain, the same things that are driving Nahash. 
It may be in our workplaces, it may be in our families, and the reality of living in this world is that there is a very strong likelihood that even if you're not facing something like this now, there is very likely something like this you will face at some point in your life. So what will you do in a situation like that? Who will you turn to? As extreme as this situation here is, it gives us warnings, but also hope that we can learn from in three points. The fallacy of trusting in man, the foolishness of trusting in idols, and the freedom of trusting in God. The fallacy of trusting in man, the foolishness of trusting in idols, and the freedom of trusting in God. So first, the fallacy of trusting in man. So let's come back to the passage. One of the things that stood out to me is that when the people of Jabesh Gilead are faced with this terrible threat, there's actually no record of them calling out to God. We can only speculate why, but I think this is especially ironic given what has just happened in the last number of years. On the one hand, you've had God who has miraculously delivered his people a number of times from their enemies. In fact, for about 20 plus years after turning to God in chapter 7, there's peace and they've even gotten back a lot of the cities that they had lost to the Philistines. On the other hand, Jabesh Gilead has a pretty awful history with the people of Israel. Towards the end of the book of Judges, which is a very dark time in, the period in, in Israel's history, all the tribes come together to take revenge on a particular tribe of Benjamin that's living in a town that did some terrible things. Revenge is absolutely brutal, and they kill a very large number of Benjamites. Then those tribes start to feel a bit of remorse, and they think, oh my gosh, we've actually wiped out an entire tribe of Israel. How can we do that? And so they decide they want to do something to help them. And then what they say is, well, is there anybody who did not come and help us to fight these guys? And it turned out there was one town in all of Israel that did not do it, Jabesh Gilead. So now what these people do is they go to Jabesh Gilead and they kill a lot of them. And then they take 400 women and take them from that town and give them to the Benjamites to help them repopulate. So if you're from Jabesh Gilead, who would you go to to help? God or the people who did this to you? And amazingly, they still go to the people. In a twist of irony, the town that did not answer the call for help is now sending messengers all over Israel for help. Now, one of these messengers comes to Gibeah, where Saul is. Now, remember, Saul has been publicly chosen as king over the, over the people. We saw last week how, God, how the people rejected God and decided they wanted a king in the image of the people, like, like the people around them. He's someone who certainly looks the part, head and shoulders above everyone, and there's no one as handsome as he is. Now, just as an aside, when I read this description, it reminds me of something... Um, when, of the time when we found RHC, because we were attending another church and we were, uh, there's a couple who came and was talking to us and they were, and this, they were talking to, to, telling us what a great young church it is. And then the lady very enthusiastically said, and there's this South African pastor who's really good looking. <laughs> and I was like, eh, that's not exactly what I'm looking for in a pastor <laughs> and a church, you know? Um, but thankfully, we came here, and, and well, well, thankfully, Simon has a lot more attributes than just being good-looking, so we decided to stay. But back to the passage. Even though Saul looks the part and has been appointed king, the nation was fairly divided on whether he really was the man for the job. And the text here takes the effort to show us that he really wasn't doing anything to change that opinion. 
Now, being a leader is daunting, especially when it means leading people into actual physical battle where you might get killed. But Saul doesn't, instead of doing anything of that sort, apparently he just goes back to his farm and he starts farming again. But something changes at this point. The Spirit of God rushes upon him and he is filled with righteous anger. He calls out to all of Israel to join him and defeat this enemy of God, of God's people. The fear of the Lord falls in the entire nation and 330,000 people come out. They fight together and they deal the arrogant Nahash and his armies a defeat so devastating that no two of the survivors are left together. The people are now convinced that Saul is the leader that they want. So they all go down to Gilgal and they gather together as Samuel ceremoniously makes Saul king. There's a great celebration, there's rejoicing, and a peace offering made to God. And at this point, everything seems to be going well. But it's important to see that it's exactly at this time, or times like this, when things are good, when we've just had significant victories, that our situation can be most precarious. It's when things are going well that we are most likely to drift from God, because we feel like we can handle all the things around us without him. And while Saul is taking a lot of the credit here, the text makes the point very clearly that all of this is really due to God, and it does it in a couple of ways. First, the way we can see this in the way the, stra- the passage is structured. If you look at the slide behind me, and there's something called a chiastic structure here, right? Um, now, I find this is something that is a is found in Hebrew literature. And and when we read these passages, it's very difficult to see this because we're not trained to read the passages this way. But whenever I see something like this, I just think it's amazing how it's actually written. So I just want to walk you through this. Um, Now, the way the chiastic structure works in Hebrew writing is there's a symmetry to the story, right? So you've got a symmetric pattern and the statement that's in the middle of of the structure is the primary emphasis of the passage, right? So remember, they don't have bold and italics and underlines and stuff like that, so this is how they did that. And if you look at this passage, you can see that you had the Ammonites threaten in verses one to two, but the Ammonites defeated in verse 11. There was a response of Jabesh in verse three, we will come out to you. There was a response of Jabesh in verse 10, where they said to them, we will come out to you, which was a bluff. In verse four, the messengers returned from Nahash with bad news. In verse nine, the messengers returned from the Israelites with good news. In verse five, Saul asks a question of the messengers, gets a response. In verse seven and eight, Saul sends a message to Israel and gets a response. And right in the middle of that, verse six, which is in between verses one to 11, says the spirit rushes upon Saul. So the the passage is making it very clear that that statement is one of the big things we need to take away from this passage. But secondly, if that wasn't enough to convince you, the whole of chapter 12 is basically Samuel saying just that, right? Samuel is saying, don't forget that this is God. Don't turn away from him, turn back to him, right? And finally, one more reason we know that this victory is really not about how great Saul is, is we know what happens next. Saul becomes king but he steadily becomes more and more obsessed with his own power and gain, even at the expense of what is good for the nation Israel. Over time, his sinful desires catch up with him, and he too faces a sorry, and he dies humiliated in battle. In a sense, this is somewhat similar to another famous hero in the Bible, 
Samson. Samson too was exceptionally gifted and the same words we saw earlier about the spirit rushing upon Saul happened with him too. Yet he was deeply flawed and though he did great things and delivered Israel, his sinful desires caught up with him too and he faced a humiliating end. So a lot of parallels there. And to me, this is a sobering example how even as leaders here, we are not to take God's work in this church or when what we do as an endorsement of how good we are or not. God can work in spite of us, not necessarily because of us. And let us always be careful to see God's hand in the good things that happen in our lives, even if they come at the hands of other people. How is that something that we can reflect on in our lives? Now you could also argue though, we've talked about a bunch of bad leaders, but not all leaders are bad. What if we have some genuinely good leaders in our life? And the problem with good leaders is sometimes we're tempted to follow them instead of God because they're good enough, right? And sometimes it's easier to keep God at a distance and kind of go through an intermediary. And in this passage, Samuel seems to be a good example of this. We skip this part in the scripture reading, but there's a part in the first part of chapter 12, Samuel makes, starting his farewell speech, and he puts himself on trial in front of the whole of Israel. And he gives everyone an opportunity to raise any issue that he may with him. They, he asks them to confirm whether he's stolen anything, whether he's been impartial or not, and everyone agrees that he has been an impeccably good leader. Now, I think I've been lucky to have some Samuels in my life. Leaders in this church have been a huge blessing to me. The ministry of people like Tim Keller have been, had a big impact on me. To be honest, I'm even lucky to have had some people in my workplace who have been great examples of leadership, even from a secular point of view. But Samuel does not just sit back and bask in the adoration and affirmation of the people. He immediately brings the attention back to God. He starts by reminding them of the history of what God had done for them and the cycle of forgetting and returning that they have always had in response. God took them out of Egypt, but they forgot him and they got defeated. Then they cried out, God sent a deliverer. But then they fall again and the cycle repeats. Samuel emphasizes this repetition because they are exactly at that point again. God has delivered his people through a new hero and more than caring about his status and his acclaim, he is begging them to break the cycle. And to make the point even more emphatic, he then calls on God to give them a glimpse again of his power. Now it's the time of the wheat harvest when typically there is no rain. And in all likelihood, there aren't many clouds in the sky at this point. Samuel calls on God and the sky fills with clouds and there's massive rain and thunder. And at this point, the people stop celebrating and instead they start cowering in fear. They realize how sinful they've been in rejecting this God in favor of man, however gifted any man might be. And this ultimately is the fallacy of trusting in man versus God. However good any man may be, he cannot compare with God. And Samuel shows them in that moment that God is not just a God of history that has decided to hang up his boots and let us just do what we need to do and leave things be, but God is very much there and more worthy of honor, glory, and our trust than any man could ever be. So faced with all of this, did the people finally break their cycle of turning away from God and needing deliverance? Unfortunately not. 
So let's go to our second point, the foolishness of trusting in idols. So one of the things that I used to wonder when reading stories like this is how people who could see such a tangible expression of the power and reality of God could then go and ride ahead and, and pray to idols like Baal and Ashtoreth, the idols that are mentioned in verse 10 of chapter 12. In fact, even after the dramatic events of this chapter, already in the next chapter, in chapter 13, you start to see Saul start to drift away and start to take, hands, take things into his own hands instead of God. The cycle of Israel falling into idol worship, needing deliverance, and then falling right back in again is nowhere near over. But why does this keep happening? I think one reason for this is exactly what Samuel tells them in chapter 12, verse 9, when talking about their ancestors. He says, but they forgot the Lord their God. They simply did not remember all that God had done for them. And we can sit here and be self-righteous and judge them, but we should be careful not to assume that we are just as, careful to assume that we are not just as prone to this as they are. In one of his parables, Jesus talks about how weeds are planted along with the good seed. And when the seeds sprout, the weeds come up with them, ultimately choking the plants and affecting their ability to bear fruit. The disciples don't understand, and so he explains it to them, saying, the weeds are the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. These are the things that want our attention, urgent things that need to be done, and as well as the pursuit of wealth and gain and status. If anything, with technology and modern life, I think all of this has gotten way more intense. We can get so wrapped up in these things that it's easy to forget God and all that he has done for us. But still, worshipping stone statues. I mean, they should have known better, right? But here it's good to see what these statues actually represent. Baal was the pagan god of fertility and rain. These were both the two things most critical to wealth in those days, and also the two things most out of the control of the people. You could work really hard in the fields, but if the rains didn't come, it was all worth nothing. And children were important in order to have people help you harvest even more or help protect what you have. Having a large family gave you the tools and the opportunity to have even more land and even more opportunity and even more prosperity. With high child mortality rates, this too could be a big uncertainty. And finally, Ashtoreth symbolized not just fertility, but also sexual liberation. Well, that's definitely an idol of our age. Often worship of her included things like sleeping with temple prostitutes. Now, so between these two idols, they represent the timeless idols of power, wealth, and sex. So it wasn't just about forgetting, but an active seeking of these other things. So whether these stone, and whether these stone statues actually had the power to do anything, therefore, is not really the point. The point is that they represented the things that the people really wanted. And if God was just a means to get the things they really wanted, then as soon as something else came along that could give them or promise to give them those things, they were happy to just switch over. And we have the same temptations today. Career, even further education can be a source of wealth and pride. Casual relationships or flings can be a source of pleasure without commitment. Even good things like family can become idols that are a source of pride and identity. 
But many of these things work exactly the same way as those ancient idols. In, but, in, but instead of sacrificing animals, we sacrifice our time and our effort and effectively our whole lives. Samuel knows this and he implores the Israelites and us in verses 20 to 21. Do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. You could ask though, how exactly are the things of this world empty? I mean, I think it feels like it's nice to have wealth or live in comfort. It's nice to be able to eat at good restaurants or have long vacations. It feels nice to have power, wealth, and pleasure. And we do know that the Bible does call us to be diligent and work hard at our jobs or whatever we're called to. We're not supposed to be hermits running away from everything, but there is good that we can do in this world through our work or whatever we're called to. So what does it mean when Samuel says that things other than God are empty and cannot profit or deliver? We have to see that he's taking a bigger perspective here. And I think one way to think about this is that these are all things that have no enduring benefit. The best steak or durian, if you like it, is nice, but how much of it can you have? And once you swallow it, it's gone. Even nice things lose their ability to satisfy over time, and one is left craving either more or something else. But there are things with eternal value that actually grow over time. The good things we do, the relationships we build, and ultimately the relationship we have with God. God made us in a way where we can enjoy many things, and that is a great gift. But that enjoyment is not all we are made to live for. And Samuel's warning here is that seeking things like that as our ultimate things will never fully deliver lasting satisfaction. But even worse, anything that becomes the source of what you desire most ultimately does not liberate you, but controls you. Let me say that again. Anything that becomes the source of what you desire most ultimately does not liberate you, but controls you. Because now you can't do without it. You may, e you may even be shattered if it goes and you will sacrifice whatever it demands to keep it. And it is possible to sacrifice enough of yourself to be consumed by it. But God does the opposite. He gives us more than we can give him. We get all of him and eternal life in return for all of us and our limited efforts. It is the most lopsided trade in history. The foolishness of idols is that we believe that they could ever give us more than what God offers. And before we move on, we need to address something that I think is a more modern idol, which is the idol of self. Now historically, the self wasn't that much of an idol because people were so highly dependent on community and the idea that you were self-sufficient was not something that was very credible. But over the last hundred years and with increasing prosperity, there has been a rising focus on the self. And things like self-esteem and self-actualization have actually been raised to ultimate things that we're told to aspire to. I think you see a lot of this self-focus reflected in music and, and YouTube videos today as well, which makes sense because art often imitates life. And I think it's helpful to point some of this out to our kids. Um, my daughter discovered uh, 
Taylor Swift recently, and you can see how much of this culture feeds into these songs. Like a lot of her songs center around her life, her feelings, and the word me shows up a lot. In fact, there's even a song titled Me! Exclamation mark. Now, how we got here is a really complex topic, and there are some great books we can recommend for this if you're interested. One of them is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self by Carl Truman that traces out a lot of the big ideas. But bear with me here because this is slightly heavy, but I think it's important. One of the core ideas that I think led to this is that, and is stated in this book, is that we are born pure and that it is society that corrupts us. And if that's the case, then we should always look within ourselves for answers for what we should do and not outside. Above all, this idea tells us that we must be true to ourselves. We must be free to decide right and wrong and choose whatever we please. Now, there's some truth to the idea that society has a corrupting influence. There's also truth to the idea that we should stand up for ourselves and not be exploited by those who would seek to exploit us or change us for their benefit. But there is an emptiness to this too. Because this message to look only within yourself that is supposed to be empowering and uplifting becomes exactly the opposite when you are facing a nahash and you have no, that you have no answer for or ability to deal with. Then the message that you are all there is, that you are the only one who can decide what to do, you are the only one who is capable of doing something, is actually the most depressing thing that you can hear. Which brings us to our third point, the freedom of trusting in God. So towards the end of his speech, Samuel makes a remarkable statement. He says, for the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Now, what a tremendous promise this is. But if you think about it a bit, there's a lot about this statement that doesn't make sense. Why shouldn't God forsake his people? What have they, and by extension we, done to deserve a commitment like this? If anything, we deserve the exact opposite. We've talked about the cycles of failing and falling again and again and seeking after man and idols and all of those things, right? We, off, we so often turn to other people of things like wealth, power, and pleasure to satisfy us instead. And the Israelites, when faced with the reality of God, they understand this. And when confronted by him, they are afraid and they cry out to Samuel to pray for them, to ask that they not be killed because they know that's what they deserve. But the second part of this verse makes this even more puzzling because it says that God is doing this for his name's sake. But imagine a judge that does not punish a criminal and lets him go free. What would you say about the moral standard of that judge? It's not likely that you will think highly of him. So we seem to have a somewhat impossible situation here. God, by definition, is the standard of good and evil. But if a good God shows mercy to evil man, then by definition, he is not the standard of good and evil anymore. So how can he not forsake us and yet still be doing it for the sake of his name? The two things can't happen together. But all of this is resolved in the person of Jesus. The reason we are not forsaken is because there is another who was forsaken in our place. In Matthew chapter 27, 
It says in the sixth hour of being on the cross, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We deserve the punishment that he took and yet he took the judgment for us. God turned his back on him to make us a people for himself. Now we saw earlier how there are good leaders and bad leaders. Samuel was an amazing leader, almost impeccable. David, in the next few chapters, will show himself to be a pretty good leader, even though he has some failings. Saul has a lot of failings that start to show up very quickly. And then there are people like Nahash, who, feel, who fall much more on the evil end of the spectrum. But the point is, while there are some people who are more like God than others, we are all somewhere on the spectrum between God and the really evil people. Ultimately, this picture of total evil is personified by Satan. But there is something of that same desire for power and dominion that exists in every single one of us. At the very least, there's a desire for freedom, a freedom to do what we want, unshackled by anyone else. And the great irony is that while we seek this freedom through people or idols like power, wealth, and pleasure, none of those things will truly set us free because we will only serve them instead of God. None of us are truly self-sufficient. We all need something from someone, and they need something from us. And in seeking freedom from one thing, we only shackle ourselves to something else. The rock legend Bob Dylan has a song, Gotta Serve Somebody, that expresses this well. And if you know Bob Dylan, maybe imagine the raspy voice as I say this. <laughs> you may be an ambassador to England or France. You may, be a, you may like to gamble. You may like to dance. You may be the heavyweight champion of the world. You might be a socialite with a long string of pearls. But you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed. You're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Samuel's message speaks directly to this. In verse 20, he says, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Serve the one who ultimately holds your life in his hands the one who has the power to judge and the only one who truly has the power to save you. Hear the words of Paul in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, when he says, For freedom has Christ set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. As we close, there are three R's I think we can take from Samuel's speech and this incident that I'd like to take from this passage. Remember, repent, and renew. Remember, repent, renew. Remember what God has done for us. Israel's history is also our history, and God's faithfulness to them is a picture of his never-ending, covenant-keeping faithfulness and love to us too. But we have one more thing to remember that they didn't have, the knowledge of how we are saved by the great love that Jesus showed when he went to that cross. He was forsaken that we would not be. He who deserved more than anyone to be served came to serve. Second, repent and turn back to God like the Israelites did in this passage. Let us turn away from the people and the things that we serve in this world instead. Take the shackles off and let us come back to the freedom we have in Christ. And finally, renew. At the end of chapter 11, after the great victory 
the people have just had, they come together to renew the kingdom under God's rightful king. Now I mentioned evil people like, well, evil in stories like Lord of the Rings, like Sauron at the start of the sermon, as one of the archetypes of evil. In the movie, The Return of the King, there's a scene at the end that after Sauron is defeated, where the rightful king Aragorn takes his throne at Gondor. There's a sense of hopefulness and joy, a sense that all that is wrong is coming undone and is being set right. Now, Tolkien was a Christian, and I think there's a sense in which this was to represent in some way what it'll be like when Christ comes back to take his throne, with evil completely defeated as well. But while we wait for that to happen in this world, that can happen in your life today. So let us decide who will sit on the throne of our life, a king of our choosing or the rightful king who offers true love, joy, and freedom. Let us pray. Lord, we, we just want to come to you. We thank you for this, your word, your power, your faithfulness, and your love to us. Lord, we have done nothing to deserve it. And Lord, like the Israelites, if faced with your, the reality of who you are, we should cower in fear. But we stand behind the, blo- we stand behind the blood of Jesus. We stand on what he has done, and so we can approach you, and we can live in your freedom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.